This week on MicroCollege, our guests are Gordon Jones and Jennifer Jensen, who are the founders of Mount Liberty College in Salt Lake City, Utah. Gordon received his master's in philosophy from politi in political science from George Washington University and his MA from Stanford University and his BA from Columbia University. He's taught at various universities as well as working at the nexus of public policy and politics in Washington, DC for many years. Jennifer received her PhD in constitutional studies from George Wythe University, her MA in political economy from George Wythe University, and her BA from Brigham Young University. She's taught at different universities as well as spent much of her life raising and educating her five children. So Mount Liberty College is, is, a, is a new young institution, a micro college in every definition there. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll read your description, and then we can we can take off you know from your your biographies. Um, so uh, Gordon and Jennifer founded Mount Liberty College to serve those seeking a true education rather than the job training most regular colleges provide. The Mount Liberty College philosophy is that a solid grounding in the wisdom and literature of the ages will provide an antidote to the disconnections that characterize modern life. This kind of education will be critical if humanity is to withstand the onslaught of artificial intelligence and the accompanying dominance of STEM subjects. While incorporating most of the great books that usually comprise a liberal arts education, MLC reaches a, a bit more broadly to the history and literature of lesser known cultures whose contributions to the great conversation are only now becoming known. MLC is licensed by the state of Utah to award undergraduate and graduate degrees, but it is not otherwise accredited. The trustees of MLC believe that accreditation would take away what makes MLC different and unique and would transform MLC into a copy of every other college. So a lot of interesting things to talk about there. And um, But before we get into that, uh, here on the Microcollege podcast, um, we always start with people's life stories, their biographies. So um, I guess I'd like to ask you about your, when you were 18 years old, um, where were you? Um, what were what what shaped you during that period? And uh, and uh, yeah, what 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 was what was your education like that? And how did that influence where you are now? You have a preference to who goes first, <laughs> Gordon? Why don't you take it away? All right, I'll start. When I was eighteen, I was leaving Salt Lake City to move to New York City to enroll in as a freshman at Columbia College, the men's undergraduate faculty at Columbia University. I knew virtually nothing about college. <laughs> I was the first person in my family to, to go to college. Um, my parents, um, my father didn't even finish high school. My mother had, I think, one semester of um, college education. So I knew nothing, um, and obviously uh, New York was a revelation to me, um, all those people, <laughs> and uh, well, the education was a revelation to me too. It's not quite clear, even as uh, even now, why I went to Columbia. The story I usually tell is that I read a magazine article somewhere that said, that Columbia taught more languages than any other school in the United States. And since I was determined that I was going to learn every language in the world, I mm -hmm. said, I might as well go there and get started. So I did. <laughs> I, I went there and I was a French major uh, initially. 
And then I changed uh, to American history and finished my degree in American history. And I haven't learned all of the languages of the world, but I've uh, learned several of them. And uh, uh, at least I know that there are more than <laughs> than I can manage in this <laughs> lifetime. So, uh, also, over that period of time, uh, after my first year at Columbia, I was called as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and sent to France. Um, so I spent uh, two and a half years in France and Belgium um, before returning to uh, Colombia and uh, uh, finishing my undergraduate degree there in 1967. While I was in France, it was kind of a momentous time. As a missionary, you're not particularly involved in the day-to-day -day affairs of uh, what goes on in France, but it was a little hard not to uh, be not to notice that. Uh, the Algerians had attempted to uh, assassinate Charles de Gaulle while I was there. Right. And uh, we listened with some care and a little bit of maybe trepidation to uh, broadcast the accounts of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the uh, Taiwan um, uh, Straits uh, Crisis, uh, which took place during the time that I was there. So I returned uh, and re-enrolled at uh, Columbia, I was really quite a different person than I had been when I left. I, I, you can't spend two and a half years living in Europe without having some significant effect. Oddly enough, or maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe it's odd, I don't know, it was my political views and views on social issues were fairly nebulous before I uh, went to Columbia, but during that time, I uh, sort of acquired a, 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 an orientation, uh, uh, philosophical and political orientation that has stayed with me, uh, not unchanged, but has stayed with me from then until now. I sort of moved into what I would think I call the kind of National Review conservative William F. Buckley. While I was in New York in 65, Buckley ran for mayor of New York. Uh, that was the first political campaign I ever had anything to do with. Um, uh, in 64, um, I was, um, I was, uh, that was the first presidential campaign that I was ever actually uh, very much aware of. Uh, I paid a little bit of attention in 1960, but not much. Um, there was, I, I accumulate these stories. I don't know whether they're in, uh, of any interest to anybody, but New York had a, a campaign in 1960 to clean up the city. Uh, so you're supposed to pick up your trash and then and the, the ads would show a, a, a trash bin and say, cast your ballot here for a cleaner New York. You know, so, And uh, I remember uh, editorial comment saying, considering the two candidates that we have here running for president, maybe we ought to just say, cast your ballot here. <laughs> so. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so those, there's some there's some classic things there in in that you know I've been asking people this question for for over a year now um, on mostly a weekly basis. People are doing interesting and things, creating organizations and colleges, um, and and you know the you know the the story of of going um, of course leaving home, going to the, to a different city is is a common one, but also travel in. You know the I think LDS um, folks and and other people who who go on missionaries you know have this built into their experience of being in another culture and uh, 
you know, that that being very formative and, and people do that informally as well. Um, gap year programs abroad, things like that. Um, yes. So that that that's that's striking that that's part of your story as well. Transformative experience. Yeah. Columbia University, the Columbia College, when you were there, is that um, I mean, Columbia had uh, for a long time, at least a, a really developed kind of a core curriculum. It was sort of a great books curriculum. Yes, it was. Uh, it was advertised. Uh, and it was one of the things that was attractive to me. I had no idea what it meant. But uh, the idea of, of liberal arts, I always liked uh, drama, uh, theater. Um, so reading the, the Greek tragedies, uh, reading Socrates, although when I first got there, I thought you pronounced that Socrates. <laughs> uh, I, I, I truly knew nothing. Uh, um, so, yeah, Columbia had the, the great books. And of all of the major colleges, I think Columbia, even today, has more of it left than, than just about anybody of the, of the major universities. Uh, mm hmm yeah, that, that program has had a big influence, I think, on other institutions, you know, and, and that that kind of mode of liberal arts education that, that uh, yeah, I see you're, you're participating in. So. And I still, I still, when I teach my course at Mount Liberty, I go back to the textbooks. I, well, they aren't textbooks, but the, the, the books that I bought, uh, my uh, Aristotle and my uh, uh, Socrates and my uh, uh, Plato and... Uh, um, Euripides, you know, I still have those on my shelf from when I was a freshman uh, in 1960. So, yeah. and a major, major impact on my life. Yeah. Stood the set, the test of time. <laughs> it's a good thing about those classics, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So, Jennifer, how about you? What, what was, where were you in this phase of life, and what was, what made an impact on, on your, your becoming an adult? So when I graduated from high school, it was a little bit later than that, but it was um, during the 80s. So right after college or right after high school, I went with an orchestra and we toured some of Europe, which was really fun. So I had a little bit of that experience, not two and a half years, but just a little bit. But during my college days is when Chernobyl happened, when the Berlin Wall fell, um, you know, that day after movie that came out about, um, you know, the, the bombs and stuff like that was a big deal when I was, when I was getting ready to go to college and, and first in college. And so that's the kind of thing that was happening in the world when I went to college. Um, so it was kind of a scary time or it felt very scary because you didn't know what was going to happen. And, um, I I just went to a regular college here in Utah and, and ended up getting married in a couple of years and finished school married. So um, I didn't have quite the interesting experience that Gordon did, but different times and and all of that. I, I really loved the classics, but I didn't even realize that that was a type of study. Like if you had said to me, oh, you could go get a liberal arts education, I don't think I would have even known that that existed. So those were my favorite types of books to read. And I read a lot of them, but I didn't have any idea that that was something that could be an actual education. Mm -hmm. So so that was kind of eye-opening to me later when I found that out. So I just was at a normal college doing normal job training kind of stuff. Yeah. 
And so how is it that you you come to be doing what you're doing now, right? How how do you go from, you know, you, you've raised a family and, and uh, you're raising a family now. Well, when my kids were little, um, I actually homeschooled them and I was trying to find ways to do that. And I found um, that's when I first was introduced to George Wythe University and they actually had this classical type education and I was really drawn to it. And I, I love that. And that's how I raised my children is how I, how I taught and educated them was through a liberal arts education model. And, um, and then while I was, while I was raising them is when I got my master's and my PhD. And so it was kind of simultaneous with my kids going to school. And, and so then when my kids grew up a little bit, then I started kind of teaching for them and, and doing other stuff like that. So, so that's kind of how, how it went with me. Yeah. So that's, you, you kind of went through the, the classics with, with your kids as you're, as they were going through their yes. own education. Yes, exactly. We would have reading times every day and where we would read chapter books and um, some of them obviously I'd read before because I really liked those kind of books, but a lot of them I read with them for the very first time. So it was, it was actually really fun. And it was probably one of the best parts of our school day was reading those great classics and talking about them. Yeah. So I'm excited to talk to you today um, you know, because, you know, this, uh, you know, this idea of a micro college, you know, in, in general, like innovation, you know, you know, renewal of higher education is, is a, is a movement where we're following in several different directions and it, it, it looks different in different places. And, uh, but I think there are some real commonalities in what, what, um, people um, are bringing. Um, one thing that that we're tracking and is, you know, we've been talking about with other guests on the podcast is, is this just the term and the concept of the liberal arts, right? And, you know, Mount Liberty College is really foregrounding this, the phrase, the classical liberal arts and, and uh, you know, and, and, and focusing in on that and interpreting it, it feels like in some unique ways. Um, but maybe you, when you use that term, liberal arts, and especially classical liberal arts, what does that, what does that mean? And, and why is it why is it important? You go ahead, Gordon. Well, all I was going to say is that to us, it, it means, I think it means original sources. We, uh, we, we don't have textbooks in our, in our classes. Uh, if we want to uh, look at uh, the uh, culture of Japan or China, uh, we don't read books about Japan or China, although we might. Uh, recommend some uh, uh, examination of, of uh, an overview of history, uh, but we would not assign a textbook on Japan or China. We would go to original sources, uh, and some of these are very old. Um, this is uh, where you, you mentioned that our concept of the of the uh, great books is a little broader than the traditional uh, understanding. The, when when this that phrase, that description of it for education came into, into uh, existence, the, uh, the criticism that was made of uh, uh, liberal education was just a lot of dead white males, uh, mostly uh, European, um, was, uh, was an accurate uh, uh, criticism, I think. Uh, we simply didn't have, at those times, uh, access to the, the, the documents that we have now. 
when I graduated from Columbia, I had read the Quran. I had read a little bit of the Analects of Confucius, but that was essentially it, other than European culture. My course now that I teach, uh, The Development of Civilization, we spend a lot of time reading uh, Mencius, reading uh, uh, creation myths from various uh, uh, countries, uh, areas of the world. We'll spend quite a bit of time in my class uh, reading Gilgamesh. We don't read it in the original. Nobody reads it in the original. But, uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, we will... Uh, uh, we will read the Ramayana, the Bhagavad Gita, you know, uh, the uh, prayer mat of flesh from China, you know, the uh, these uh, these works of, of non-European literature are part of civilization, and uh, so we expose our students to that. So uh, that's what 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 the liberal arts means to us is engaging with the people who built the civilization that we lived in and in, and interacting with them in the great conversation. Now, we teach our students that they're just like the students were 3,000 years ago. Uh, so they, they can, their, their insights are valuable. Uh, they will be life-changing as they read these documents. Uh, they will come to appreciate things that they weren't even aware of before, truth, beauty, uh, all of that. That's, this is what a, what a classical liberal arts education is to us. We do have an, uh, a, a specific language component in our uh, uh, course of study as well. Every student has to have a lang another language. Um, and they, but we don't, the only one that we teach is Latin, but they can, many of them will acquire it in some other way. Uh, either growing up or, uh, or on a uh, some many of our students are LDS and have served missions in, in uh, foreign language foreign countries so they will pick up a language there or they can just study on their own test out of it but uh, amongst the faculty as a whole we have a pretty broad uh, uh, broad uh, coverage of, of, of world languages so that's helpful and useful but that's what liberal arts means to us getting yeah. right down into it, rolling up your sleeves, seeing what uh, what did Augustine actually have to say? Yeah. And that that really makes a big difference too, because you're not you're not getting that middle person in a textbook that that always puts a slant on it. And I, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Whenever you write about somebody else, you're going to add your slant. It's just, per, it's just human nature. And so we're getting their original thoughts versus somebody's idea of their original thoughts. And it, and it makes, and I, I guess as originally you can get as in a translation. And that's another thing that we actually tend to do, especially in Gordon's class where say they'll read the Odyssey, they'll read five or 10 different translations and then talk about all those differences. So we feel like all of that is really eye-opening for, for young students. One thing too is um, these people that lived, you know, hundreds or even thousands of years ago went through some of the same situations we do. So one example is um, Marcus Aurelius when he was king, there was a pandemic and so it's interesting to see how he dealt with those kind of things versus how we dealt with them and then be able to apply things that he did to our day to day. So 
I mean, because human nature always has stayed the same and it always will. And the fact that they lived through some of the same kind of things that we're living through today is is really eye-opening, I think, for students. And, and, and you know, it's a, it's a great way to see what other people have already tried. And we don't have to try things that don't work, maybe, you know, the same through the same experiences. So, yeah, and this you know, writing is this remarkable technology it allows us to hear in the in the voice of people who who've been dead for hundreds or thousands of years, right? And and uh, it's remarkable. Yes. Often that's a familiar voice, right? Yes. Yeah, we read some. We read all of the works that Plato in one of our classes for freshmen. We read the ones that Plato wrote about Socrates, about his life and death. And most kids have heard about Socrates. You know, most people have heard about Socrates. Very few have actually read anything about him, like actually read Plato where he talks about him. And so they love that to actually sit down and read what was actually said about him versus just what they've heard. And sometimes that's different. Right. Yeah, such a distinctive voice. The the Socrates of, of the Platonic dialogues is is uh, is you know you yes. recognize that voice anywhere. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right, and it's different from sometimes what they've heard or maybe read in a textbook or something. You know, just reading a paragraph or two in a textbook is very different from digging in and reading an entire dialogue or three or four dialogues. You know about him. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I just want to underline one of the things that you know that that you're saying here. I mean, so people may have heard of the um, you know the, the Great Books curriculum at places like St. John's College. Um, you know, there's a few other you know um, great books colleges that have a, have a really strong you know a canon, a, a very set kind of a curriculum set of books from the Western tradition. Um, and so, and those are those are really framed in such a way as um, to is to 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 be kind of you know chronologically continuous from from you know from the Bible often, or or the Odyssey or the Iliad, you know, down to to some more recent times, but you know, within within Western culture. So um, what you're doing by bringing in you know Asian classics, you know, at the also Gilgamesh and, and some of these writers are not you know, often um, stories are not in those those canons. I mean that's that's pretty different and distinctive. Um, and I guess you know the, one of the arguments for the 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 kind of St. John's or the you know the, the coming out of the University of Chicago you know the the great conversation is that it is a conversation within one culture right um you know the Greeks you know earlier Greeks speaking to the later Greeks and the Romans and and then you know the Judeo-Christian civilization and medieval civilizations that's that's one continuous kind of dialogue um how do you think about you know how does it work to bring in these other civilizations into it I think it really opens their eyes as to that there are other things out there. Um, I, I teach a political philosophy class that I taught last year to the juniors and seniors. And so we were reading philosophers about politics, you know, in within the Western, but also people like Mencius and Confucius and, and what they had to say about it so that they could see that it isn't all just right here that, some of those ideas span, you know, human nature from many cultures. And then there are other ideas brought in too that you don't always get in the Western canon. We, so. uh, uh, at the beginning of my course, I tell the students that they're going to be spending the next 
two years with me studying the development of civilization and four years at, at the college. And I say, well, what you will find is that there are certain themes that, that pervade all cultures at all time. Questions of, of justice, questions of political uh, accountability, um, um, legitimacy, um, family structures, social structures, caste and race. Uh, so right from the beginning, I have them looking in the literature as we read it, looking for clues to how that society dealt with some of those issues. And then if we move from the, the broad uh, Middle Eastern uh, culture down to specifically Greece, with the, the golden age of Greece, Pericles and so on, um, Plato and, uh, and and the playwrights. We're here. We're reading these plays. What do you see now in terms of political legitimacy? Uh, here's Antigone uh, defying authority. Um, what does that? What what echoes of of that do you see today? And and they will find them. And then we move we move from Greece to Rome, and again you had the questions of political legitimacy, the rule of law. When you put post the the, the twelve tables, everybody now knows what's legal and what's yeah. illegal. So we, we we for the first time we have a a, a a legal standard against which we can measure behavior and the, the treatment of behavior. And then we'll move on later until we get all the way up to the modern day always tracing these particular things. And we, I, I tailor their writing assignments to reflect that as they, as they move through this. Look, pick a topic and look at it. You pick a different topic and look for it for these next uh, four, uh, four years. Yeah, so trace a similar theme over time. That, that's a really powerful, powerful thing I've done with classes as well. Yeah, beautiful. Well, so maybe can you, um, Tell us the story of, of Mount Liberty College. Um, how did it come about that you decided to to start this? And um, and yeah, tell us a little bit about what what it looks like today. Uh, Jennifer, you go ahead. <laughs> well, um, so we both taught at at George With, which was a liberal arts school here, and they had had some problems in the beginning and they were not able to overcome those and they ended up having to close. And um, we felt like that was a huge loss for this area. I mean, there's nothing liberal arts-ish anywhere near really. I mean, there are some schools who say they are, but they're really not. And, um, and we just felt like there needed to be something we were hoping that somebody else would do it. And we sat around and waited for a couple of years and <laughs> nothing ever happened. And so eventually we decided that we would do that. And so, I mean, part of it was watching my kids go to college and seek some of the stuff that they were learning and not being really impressed with it. And, and so we decided, well, let's, let's go for it. And I think, um, I don't think Gordon really believed it would ever happen at first. And then as we started going, it really did start to happen. And we got students for the first year and, and um, 
it was really impressive. Like we were really impressed that it actually worked and that somebody wanted to actually come and do something different, you know, because that's scary. It takes a lot of courage to, especially at that age, you know, 18, a year is a long time. Mm -hmm. And to be willing to try a year, you know, at some new place that doesn't have a history takes a lot of courage and we were able to find some students with that courage and that wanted something different. And, and it was kind of fun because they were able to help to like, you know, when you have small classes, you know, only eight or 10 people in a class, you can really tailor the class to fit what the students want even. And so that was really fun. And, and, you know, we got a lot of feedback and we found other people who would eventually be part of our faculty who also loved the, the great books and the liberal liberal arts. And so we were able to pull them into and, and it's just been, it's, it's not grown the way we had kind of hoped. Like we hoped it would be a little bit bigger, but we're around 20, 25 mm -hmm. students. And so, which has actually been, you know, really great. It's probably better that it went slowly so that we could get it ready. But but it's been it's been a really big growing experience, I think, for all of us to to figure out what should be taught and what do what do people what do people need to know to make their life better and to be able to recognize things like beauty and understand human nature and and to understand some of those themes that Gordon was talking about. What what would help them be able to be critical thinkers and be able to look at the world rather than just kind of accepting everything, but be able to, to look at it and say, that's something I want to accept, or that's something I don't, you know, and, and, and be able to, to do that, have some, have some personal autonomy in that and be able to make choices rather than just accepting everything they hear. Cause we all know that not everything you hear in the media is true. So <laughs> So it's just, it's really been, it's really been fun actually to go through and, and see all of that. So Gordon, you add stuff now. Well, uh, the only thing I would add is that um, uh, it, it, Jennifer's right. I didn't, I wasn't sure it was going to work. Uh, I'm glad we tried it and I'm glad that it uh, has in fact worked. And that's the point I'd like to, to emphasize that it has worked. We have actually graduated students uh, done a full four years of education with us and lo and behold they are now pursuing uh, postgraduate studies at prestigious universities and doing what they want to do um, so the model that we set up at the beginning which was consciously independent we did not seek accreditation uh, and have no intention of ever seeking accreditation uh, none of our students can borrow money from the federal government to come here. <laughs> Tuition is low and they're not going to be burdened with a, a debt because they can't borrow money to, to, uh, uh, to finance their education. So um, that part of it, I, I think, is, has proven to be a, a validation of the model that we started out with. Uh, and we, um, we, we, you keep talking about a micro-college, we never said to ourselves, let's found a micro college. We said, let's find, found a liberal arts college that will start out with 20 freshmen, 
and then 20 more and 20 more and 20 more. And eventually we'll have a school of around 100 students. And that was our goal. We're not there yet, but we, uh, we, we're about ha we, we got about halfway there. That first, first year, we, uh, we enrolled about, I think we enrolled, enrolled 11 students the first year. Our goal was 20. One of them had some health problems and dropped out. But um, that's sort of what, what the pattern has been. We've, we're somewhere between uh, five and 10 new students each year for four years, now entering our fifth year of operation, which with, as I say, a track record of graduates who have gone on to the master's programs at other universities. And once one of them is home writing the great American novel, he decided not to go on, but he could have gone on if he'd wanted to. The, the lack of accreditation has never been a problem. Uh, we've, yeah. we've, uh, we, we have, uh, explored this extensively and most uh, graduate faculties don't care. They want to know that you've got a degree and we do have a legal degree. The state of Utah licenses us to award degrees. So we do that. Um, but, uh, uh, Ralston college doesn't say, well, we're not going to admit you because you graduated from a, uh, an unaccredited institution. In fact, two of our students are right now in Greece with the Ralston's Masters uh, of Humanities program. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that that's a remarkable part of, of your story and um, certainly very interesting. You know, it's a common question that I receive about our programs. And, and I think it, that the, the whole system of accreditation is very difficult to understand and complicated for, <laughs> for people. So maybe you yes. describe yes. as you looked into this, you know, what, you know, why, why not get accredited? Like what, 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 what would that compromise in your programs to, to go through a formal accreditation process such that you've decided to forego it? Well, a lot, of, a lot of parents are realizing today that there are problems in the K-12 schools, right? The Department of Education has kind of taken over, and um, there are a lot of parents who are choosing alternative methods. So not just homeschool, but charter schools and private schools. And, and they're seeing that there's a problem there and understanding that it kind of comes back to the Department of Education and the money that they get from the federal government and having to follow mandates. And... What they don't understand is that the accreditation for colleges goes back to that same source. So any accreditation company that you find today or, or 95% of them, any that are considered legitimate accreditation companies, all themselves are accredited through the Department of Education. So you're going to have the same problem in the college atmosphere that you have in the K-12. You know, the same problems exist in both. And once you become accredited, you have to, there are strings that are attached. You have to do certain things. It, there's some oversight that they get to choose. I've, I've heard stories of colleges who planned different classes and somebody on the faculty decided they didn't like it and called the accreditation company. And the accreditation company came and said, you can't teach that class or, you know, we're not going to accredit you. And so there's all these kind of things that parents, I, I just don't think parents realize, they think of accreditation more like you're licensed. You know, you're you're a legitimate company that I know that if I give you money, you're not just gonna fly away with it and I'll never see you again. That's really not what accreditation is, not anymore. I think that probably was at the beginning, but it isn't anymore. There are really so now you have to only keep these rules. There are really only two advantages to accreditation as we see it. 
One is uh, if you don't finish at Mount Liberty, can you transfer Mount Liberty credits to somewhere else? And the answer to that question is probably not. Uh, with a few maybe a few places, we yeah. might be able to make a, a few exceptions, but uh, but largely that's not going to be possible. So uh, if you start with us, <laughs> you should you plan to finish to. with us. The second advantage is that you can qualify for federal aid grants and and loans. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want federal aid uh, for our students, so that that's no advantage. So there really is no upside to accreditation as far as we can see it. Um, and and as Jennifer says, there is the potential for significant downside. Uh, as we see the accrediting institutions requiring just the time and the money it takes exactly, to be yeah. accredited. Uh, there are schools that, that have you know, whole departments of accreditation overseeing them to make sure they don't stray from the party line and endanger that that accreditation yeah, our experience is that the graduate schools don't care i mean there are some there are some that probably do but for the majority you know they usually require some kind of a test the gre or the lsat for law schools yeah. if you go to a law school and you you have a good score on that lsat they're not going to care they just they just want the good score on the lsat so most places most places just don't care that much. And we've actually found even at least schools around us. So regular colleges around us, um, we'll hear stories like my son had a really good friend who transferred from one to the other. And one was a two year and he and he got his uh, um, associates there and thought he should be able to transfer it to this other school, which they're both accredited. It should have worked. And they of this have his 68 credits. They took eight. And I think part of that is because you know, people are not going to college as much, like there's a downturn. And so they don't want just two years of your money. They want four years, you know, they want you to be there all four years. So I think even the transferring credits isn't as big of a deal for needing accreditation as, as it used to be. So there's lots of, there's lots of reasons. I mean, we get to choose ourselves and, and our students help choose what our um, curriculum looks like. And I, I, I had mentioned to you before, we had one class that was development of civilizations just for the United States, American history. And um, the professor was going to have them read a certain classic. And most of the students had already read it before. And so they just kind of voted amongst themselves. We don't really want to read that book we already have. Let's read a different one because there's so many, right? You only you can only read so much in your lifetime. So why read the same one again? Not that that's bad, but they all wanted to read something different. So they talked the teacher into reading something different, which, you know, which is great. Mm -hmm. I was really excited to hear that. And it was, it's a really fun thing to be able to do in a small school, you know, is to have some of that control and say, we as students want to do X and be able to actually do it. You, so, you may recognize this as a return to the medieval model of the, of the first universities. That's yeah. what it is. We regard ourselves as a community of scholars. Some of us have been at it a little bit longer than others, um, but but uh, the students have their views and uh, uh, attitudes and their ability to uh, to uh, assess and process information are just as good as ours. We've been at it longer. We can point them to things that they might not otherwise know about, 
but it's not really the case that our thinking is superior to theirs. So we, we regard the school as a community of scholars and invite them to uh, uh, join us in the enterprise of shaping this community so that it is most responsive to the needs and desires of, of the community. Yeah, that that's a really great point. I think that um, you know that the the medieval roots of the university are something that that are fascinating to to learn about. And uh, as you said, you know the university begins as an organization of students, right? As as a, yes. as a union, you could say, and, and not as a wing of the government or of the church or you know or or of some sort of corporation. It was it was the yeah. students banding together to negotiate with the teachers who were the college, right? They're the 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 faculties, right? Were there were kind of two entities that were in in conversation or in negotiation with each other, yeah. kind of organically. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, so I think yeah. Jennifer, your, your story about that class it, it points to the fact that I mean, you you are a homeschooling family, and it sounds like you know a fair number of your students are coming from a homeschooling background, and this is a this, lot of them or or alternate education, a lot of them from charter schools and stuff too. Yeah, this this homeschooling movement is is a major force in education that has only has grown you know a lot over the last several decades and since the since COVID you know a lot more people also have stepped into that and um, so I'm wondering yes. about you know your experience of of having you know designing a a college that is that is really um, has that population people have had that experience of 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 you know outside of the walls of a school um you know homeschooling background that what is that like and what does that bring to uh, to a uh, to a classroom setting or or you know uh, you know they're they're in school right all of a sudden <laughs> actually um for the most part they do really well they because usually because we're liberal arts usually families who are already kind of in that direction are the ones that come. We've found some kids who have read amazing amounts of books and and really have an amazing background that that you know we can have really great conversations with because they they have some of that already. Um, not everybody comes that way. It's it really is just your desire. You know, you don't have to have already read a ton to be able to come here, but if you have a desire to learn and a desire to understand, then, then I think that is what matters. But, but yeah, I do. We are somewhat, or we kind of see ourselves somewhat as if you, if you as a parent thought that the schools weren't good for K-12, then potentially you should see the colleges the same way and and you should want something different even up through college. And so that's kind of a little bit of of what we teach and what what we talk with parents about is that it's not any better when you get into college. And so it's it's good to keep that going. Um cuz kids can really go the older they get the deeper that they can go right i mean even if they've read the same book in high school they can read the same book in college but get something completely different out of it so or or even you know you have two students in the class they can read the same book and get completely different things out of it and and have really great conversations so our classes are all socratic method we have discussions and we we ask questions and we try to find principles and we try to um we try to try to figure out together what 
what the author is trying to say Mm -hmm. and what we should be getting from that author. And so that's really different from lectures too. We're not trying to, to fill their, what's the word that they always use? Like fill their bucket. We're trying to light a fire under them to want to keep learning. And so it's a really big difference there. We're just not trying to fill, you know, pour things into them because that's not how education really works. Right. We all know that, but if we can light a fire and get them excited about it and they're reading these super amazing things and wow, I actually just read about Socrates and how cool is that? You know, and that it's really fun to watch, you know, at the end of the school year, their first year will sometimes in a class, I'll say, okay, well, think about this whole year. What have you learned this whole year? What have you read this whole year? And they're all, they're just so excited to be able to look at that list. And and obviously by the end of the year, they're pretty exhausted and their brains are pretty fried, you know, but, but they're also really excited or, or to be able to come to class and say, yeah, I was just listening to the news and it mentioned this person and I, I read him. That is so cool to be able to say, I read this guy that I just heard about in the news, you know, or whatever. It was just, it's there. It's really fun to watch. So yeah. those, that's always, that's, that's a really cool thing. And, and I think, I think homeschool families are kind of already on that track. So back to the original question, homeschool families are kind of already on that track. So it's, it's more of a natural flow, I guess, but, but we don't necessarily, we're not limited to that. We'll take students who, who um, just desire for something more, even if they came from regular. In fact, what's really funny is we just got an application for a student a little bit ago who is from a public school. And one of our questions on our application is, what classics have you read and taught, say a little bit about them. And her answer was literally none. She has not read any classics or any, you know, original source work really. And so that that's going to be really interesting, but she wants it now. She has this desire. And so she, she's coming from a different place maybe than those homeschooled kids, but it, you know, she can totally, she can totally do it just like anybody else. So we should emphasize that, uh, Mount Liberty is, uh, we haven't had a, a major problem with selection pool <laughs> <from a huge laughs> of, of applicants, but Mount Liberty is a, uh, it's not an easy school. It, uh, we, we're engaging in, uh, different cultures, uh, authors who wrote 3,000 years ago and an idiom that is quite different from our, the idiom that we deal with today. Um, we don't provide training. We provide education. It's uh, a very Socratic idea. We want to extract from the students, bring out what the students already know, um, as Socrates did. Uh, if you want to be a, uh, a, a an aerospace engineer, this is probably not the school you want to go to. Uh, any engineering master's degree program uh, is not going to accept a degree from Mount Liberty College because we don't teach. We teach the philosophy of science and the philosophy of math. But we don't teach math and science itself themselves. So um, if you want that kind of a degree, I, we, 
we would recommend, very few students would do this, we would say, come and study with us for two years or four years, and then go get a, an undergraduate engineering degree someplace, and then go on to your master's degree. It's, good, it's going to take you two to four years longer than it otherwise would, but you will now have a, a, a founding, a grounding in in a culture that will stand you in good stead for the rest of your life. And you will be the best engineer at Lockheed Martin because you've had this four years with us. Um, yeah, you got there late, but who runs Lockheed Martin? It's not engineers, it's liberal arts graduates. Yeah, that, that that's, that's an important point. I mean, here, you know, liberal arts is, is um... It's had a bad rap in various ways in the last, you know, several decades or, you know, decade or so. And, then, and you know, from different directions, people from the left, as you mentioned, you know, people from the right. Uh, I think maybe the word liberal in there is is challenging to some people. But but overall, this also is a question. It's not useful. Right. Um, and um, and I think that 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 clearly isn't true. If you look at you know, who actually is, as you're saying, in, in positions of leadership and, you know, what is what is yes. what is kind of elite education look like for for leadership in general? It is it is going back to ancient times a liberal arts education, right? Yes. Well, and we think that's only going to get greater in the next little while as AI starts to take over jobs. Everybody's worried about that and talking about you know we have no idea what jobs are going to still be around and you know what do we do? And yet kids, people are pushing kids into STEM jobs as fast as they can. And yet, if you think about it, those are the jobs that are going to disappear first. Those are the ones that AI can do the best. And so if you have this really broad liberal arts education, then you're left with more of a chance to do something different. You know, if your job is taken over, you still have this really broad education that you can fall back on and find something else. But if all you are is trained in this one little tiny area and that job disappears, you have nothing. You basically have to start over. And so we feel like a liberal arts education, this broad education is actually going to be more valuable in the future than, than people think it is now, you know, just for that very reason of, we don't know what's happening. We don't know what's coming and and let's be prepared in all different ways so that we can you know move easier from place to place and field to field mm -hmm. yeah so that 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 resonates with me for sure um and i think you know that the the great book seminar right that the discussion-based classes the socratic method that you're talking about is i think for me also a real a reason for small scale institutions you know i think you know 100 students as you're kind of shooting for would still i think qualify as a micro college um in a lot of ways well right? and they and they wouldn't be all in the same class i mean our right. classes are usually 8 to 10 people um and we we would never be over 20 that's always been our rule is we would never have over 20 in a class and i and and i think yeah you can't really have a good discussion if you have more than that, you just can't. So we we want to keep it small so that everybody feels apart. Because really, if you think about it, when you're in a group, you remember what you say better than you remember anything else. And so it's really important that everybody participate and and be a part of that discussion because that's really where the learning comes. Much yeah. more than just listening. There's a really a case of appropriate scale, right? And that um you know, I also have, have really valued and come to appreciate that the the you know the approach that is brought to these these primary source texts that these are 
these are voices of people, you know, from from the past, from different places in the world, from very different kind of perspectives and backgrounds. But you know, the, the attitude that is is, is cultivated in in a, in a great books classroom is one of like, can what is this, what is this voice, what is this person saying, right? What is their, you know, how do how, how do they see the world, and and can we understand that from sympathetically first before we start to to, to kind of poke holes into it, and uh, and that's a, like a really great skill for for life, it seems to me. Yes. Yeah. So I think on the other side, I mean, um, one question I've always, I have about, uh, about a great books kind of focused curriculum is, you know, what, what is, what forms uh, of, of knowledge are not represented by something that's in a printed text. Right. Um, And that might be, you know, what about oral traditions, but also what about embodied experiences Um, here at Thoreau college? We do a lot of um, farm work and a lot of, um, you know, things, you know, camping and, and, uh, and immersions in nature, right? Is there, is there something, you know, what else is, is, I guess, is included in a Mount Liberty, you know, curriculum? Well, we don't offer courses in gardening or uh, anything like that, but we do have students, oddly enough, who, uh, who are gardeners and who, as part of their education, will study business management principles and personal uh, interpersonal relations and apply them to their family business, their family farm or their family uh, gardening business and, and are, are very successful with that. We've, we've had uh, a number of those. We, I, uh, obviously when you're dealing with oral tradition, uh, we've got to get to the point where the oral tr- tradition can be, start to be written down. Uh, and and yeah. when we get to that point in my course in development of civilization, we look at those cultures as well. So we've got uh, we've, we've got uh, students reading a griot's uh, rendition of the uh, uh, legends surrounding Sundiata uh, and, and you know in Africa Susa. Uh, we do the same thing in, uh, in with the traditions in China, Korea, Japan, uh, Australia. Uh, it's not South America. Yeah, South America. The Popova is part of my curriculum. Uh, you know, so we, we as as these orally performed. Uh, I, I I don't. You can't call them documents because they were orally performed. But when they start to get written down, then we start to deal with them and and the cultures that mm-hmm. produced them. Well, you know, we didn't write write down the the Iliad and the Odyssey at the beginning. Right. Once you write them down, then we can start to deal with them. Uh, and we can't go back and hear uh, somebody in Sundiata's court talking about him, but we can go back and sample the history and the tradition of the African griot uh, who sang those songs. And I'll give them two different ones uh, to, uh, and say, compare these two. Why are they different? Uh, and they're all dealing with the same thing why are these two why do these two griots deal differently with these issues so it's uh, <laughs> it's revelatory it's revelatory to them they've probably never heard of sundiata uh, as i had when i was an undergraduate that's what i mean we we've we have not only uh broadened geographically but we've also go back gone back into our own culture and brought out neglected voices that exist there uh, and this is true. It's most obvious in the United States with the black culture, but it's true as well in Italy, 
uh, Sicilian culture in Italy, different, very, very different from uh, Northern Italy. Uh, France has its own uh, linguistic and uh, ethnic entities that maintain their identity and their cohesiveness even down to the present day. You can still find people in, uh, in uh, Nice who will say, oh, I'm going to France tomorrow. Right. <laughs> yeah, we also do um, practica or like internships. So we have one student who loves gardening and she actually did an internship with a local community garden in, in her area. And she was, I think, 16, maybe 17 when she she was an early student. Um, she came in when she was still high school age and she actually the next summer became the manager of the garden at only something like 17 or 18. She was good enough and, and, you know, was able to talk to people and speak and, you know, feel comfortable and confident in what she was doing that she was asked to be the manager the next summer. And she told us she made a lot more money than, than most kids her age by far because of that. So, um, so we, we don't, we don't necessarily provide those things for them like you do, but we don't push them away either. We think that they're all very valuable and whatever a, a student's interest is, they should totally, totally be doing. We, we so, don't offer it, but I think everybody ought to go out and uh, have the experience of thinning a row of beets, yeah. sugar beets, <laughs> crawling on two miles down a row of sugar beets and thinning them. Uh, that's it helps great. to know what, what that kind of a life is like, even if only to convince you that you don't want to have to do that the rest of your life. Well, I think right. it's, it's striking to note, I mean, Socrates, you know, and and, and, yeah. and all those classic works, they're continually making reference to practical trades, carpentry, yes. worthmanship, yes. yeah. shipbuilding, all those sorts of things that you, that, you know, that yeah. that's, that's where our language comes from. So that, that, that certainly is valuable, yeah. I think, part of what we're doing here, I think, so. For sure. For sure. We, and we do think it's really important. I mean, that's why we do require practica where we'll have students do all different kinds of things. One, one girl went and got a real estate license uh, and that way she had a way to earn some money, but still could get this really great education too. So. Cool. Well, I really want to thank both of you so much for your time today for, for sharing what you're doing there. And, um, and yeah, Gordon, I'd really love to get your reading lists actually. They sound fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I extend it to you. Yeah. It changes all the time. Right. <laughs> yeah. As, as we find out more things always. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.